Wonderful. Hold. There we are. Um, so the question is, um, the relation, is that right, the relation of... Um, yeah, yeah, but, the, but scripture and the spirit. And I think as a, a sort of broader, if I can offer an analogy, which I, I hope is helpful, although like all analogies, they're, they're flawed um, and never perfect because we as mere human beings are trying to describe something that is beyond us in terms of our full comprehension. But um, um, if you picture a runner bean, you plant a, the, the seed or whatever, the bean of a runner bean, and you plant it in the ground, and um, assuming favourable conditions, soil, water, sun and so on, it will begin to, to live and it will sprout life and you'll see a little thing come through. And as soon as you see that little shoot come through, a wise gardener will get a bamboo cane and plant it into the soil next to the runner bean so that that life can be trained and shaped and made as fruitful as possible. And Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says, all scripture is God-breathed. So there's a clue to the sort of close relationship between spirit and the word of God, scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. So that the person of God may be fully equipped for every good work. And um, in the same way, the, the, the bamboo cane is there and is a sort of inspired choice of the gardener so that the plant of the, of the runner bean, in wrapping itself around the bamboo cane, may be taught and corrected and trained and coached so that it bears as much fruit. It's, it's trained for fruitfulness, for righteous, righteousness, if you like, in a, in a runner bean sense. So a kind of dynamic understanding or analogy of the relationship between word and spirit if the plant, if the runner bean just grew without the bamboo cane, it would grow up and then, and then it would just go in any kind of direction. And it runs the risk of being trampled or of being ruined, of just not being nearly so fruitful as if the life that's in the bean is kind of recognised and enhanced by the, the, the bamboo cane. I mean, here's where the analogy breaks down, because that's just an inanimate object, whereas there's something dynamic about the Bible. Uh, this God breathes unique piece of literature that, that recognises and energises something in the life of the Christian. So I would say that just as I wouldn't have, hold out much hope for a runner bean without a bamboo cane, I wouldn't hold out much hope for a Christian, a spirit-filled Christian who's not looking to wrap his or her life around the, the sort of disciplined structure, if you like, of, um, of the Bible. Is that, is that, a, is that a help? See yeah. So, so the, Bible, the Bible begins to articulate what spirit life and spirit living looks like. It gives words and shapes and analogies and ideas and commands that the spirit-filled person would just want to walk into and want to live. But we can, let's see, we can explore more of that in our, in our uh, small groups later on. Uh, if you've got a sheet, this is a sort of rough <coughs> running order for this evening. Or at least I hope it is. And... Um, I want to start straight off, actually, as you've been sitting there just for a little while. Um, we're going to just split down into twos and threes or fours on a couple of occasions, maybe, this evening. And so the very first thing is we're thinking about salvation. I just want to ask you, and again, in just twos or threes, round about where you are, what is a Christian? How would you define a Christian? Someone at work, um, 
someone at home in the neighbourhood or whatever, then you go to church. I've been thinking about this. What is a Christian? What would you say? Um, just take two or three minutes in threes or fours where you are. What would you say to that question? Okay, if I can, uh, if I can just bring you back. Now uh, there isn't a uh, there isn't uh, there isn't a sort of a, the right answer. There'll be a, a, a range of answers that we'll get at this question. So, uh, is anyone willing to um, say what someone else in their group was saying about? <laughs> What is a Christian? How would you define a Christian? Yes, Chris. Well, we came to the conclusion that was someone who followed Jesus Christ and believed that he was who he said he was or is who he said he was, and accepted what he did for us. Yeah. Yeah, someone who, who actively believes in Jesus Christ and what he did to win salvation for us. Okay, thank you. Great. I think our, our group agreed with that as the first point, but then we went on to say, and so your life, the way you act in everyday life um, shows that as your motivation for living in the way that you do. Okay, so your life demonstrates mm. what you believe. It's, it's a lived out reality. Or trained. <laughs> trained. Trained to do it. Or, tra- or trained to do it. <laughs> we practice that. Okay, good. Thank you. Others? I think we actually said someone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ believes that he died for their sins and is living in a relationship with God through him. Okay. Okay. So someone who, who believes that Jesus died to set them free from sin and is living in a relationship with God by the power of the Spirit. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so there was a, there was a moment when this Christian life began, a, a, a turning from an old way of living and embracing a new way of living. Okay, thank you. Very helpful to add those in. Yeah. Any any others? Anyone wants to add? Yeah, Chris. Yeah, Chris, it's a really important point, actually. And I, I think we'll find from time to time, particularly over this course, we'll need to take some language that we've been using shorthand and actually just, just question and, and check what it is that we understand when we use that shorthand. So um, Christian is a good example. Um, in the media, maybe, or in the newspapers, I think people have a certain understanding of what a Christian is that may differ in the kind of particularly the lived-out reality of what, um, what we might be just defining there. 
Uh, and other terms, I mean, I won't go into them now, but, um, you know, I, I, I want to tread really carefully if I'm in a conversation with someone who talks about a charismatic church or an evangelical church. Because um, um, those words have, I think, a, a, an orthodox meaning, and then they have a sort of adopted meaning that is actually, oops, is actually quite different. And um, whole discussions and whole misunderstandings can, can grow and take root, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, off, off, a, off a dodgy root, if you like, because of a misunderstanding of the original term. So, um, really important point, actually, to be really clear what we mean by the phrase Christian. But I, I, think, I think, actually, if we were to take the best bits of all of that and put that together, it's recognising something in the past, the historical event, if you like, an objective reality, that impacts our lives today. So there's a, a subjective reality as well. Um, and I'm glad that the definitions had a little bit of both, because it just leads nicely into what I want to say about salvation. Salvation, just a, um, a kind of definition... This is a little bit different from what is a Christian. It's, it's, the, it's the bigger umbrella term. Salvation, or, or getting saved, encompasses this idea of being rescued from sin in order that we might be free to live. It's salvation from and salvation for. Um, in much the same way as if we think of the paradigm, if you like, the, the, um, yeah, the analogy of the people of Israel being rescued from Egypt in order that they might live in the promised land. It's a paradigm for, for life in God's name. And salvation is, for the individual, I'd want to argue, becoming part, an active part, of God's people. Because to link it into last week, it's amongst his called out people that God is present and one of the great misfortunes of the English language when, it, when we come to read our Bibles is that we have exactly the same word for you singular as we do for you plural. And if we had a French Bible or a German Bible or a Spanish Bible, I, I, I submit that we would read the New Testament letters completely differently because we'd see just how many of those you's are you plural and their commands or injunctions to the whole body, not just to the individual. Um, so salvation in the New Testament is always understood within the body. It's something that we, we work out and experience and do together. And it is both a, an event and a process. Steve and, and his group touched on that. And so we can talk about the tenses of salvation. And in the New Testament, there, uh, Paul will write in his letters in particular of um, the fact that we have been saved. And we picked up on uh, Chris, for example, one of a number, talking about uh, believing in what, what God has done in Christ, historical reality of the cross. So because of the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ, um, we have been saved from sin. But the, the lived out reality, the sort of training now, is, is this idea of process, of, of present tense. I am being saved in the present and there is also this future aspect of salvation because, in a sense, we will never be completely Christ-like, never completely righteous until the Lord returns. And when he returns, he will uh, call all those who know him by name and who he recognises. He will call and they will, their salvation, their redemption, their adoption, all the terms that we've been looking at, will be complete. 
So Paul says, um, he who, in Philippians 1 and verse 6, he who began, past tense, a work in you, will carry it on, present, until completion, future, in the day of Christ. There are the three tenses of salvation in one verse. Philippians 1, I think it's verse 6. He who began will continue until the day of completion. So salvation, uh, an event, um, specifically in Christ, an objective the objective reality of the cross of Christ and subjectively an event, I want to say, picking up on Steve's point about this idea of, of a recognizing what God has done and choosing to repent and to walk in a new direction with uh, replaced living activity. So an event, but also a process. So uh, I've just put on the, on the sheets here, um, this idea of salvation, we're born an event into a family where the process of growing and maturing takes place. Or we're joined, you imagine um, putting on a, an artificial limb or something, you know, someone being grafted into a body, there's a, an operation where a new hand or new foot or new arm is joined to a body so that that arm can help the body to function ongoing. Uh, we're prepared for marriage as a wedding day, but then the marriage relationship grows and develops and deepens. So there's event and process. Or we're recruited into an army training and then you have the passing out parade, you're a soldier, and now it's a life of attacking and defending uh, and following orders and so on. So salvation, events and process, the past, present and future tenses of salvation. And here's where I want to begin to introduce this idea of the the role of the spirit. Um, And this, forgive me, much of this may be Um, just old hat to you, really familiar and you can kind of nod off now and write your shopping list or think about what you're going to do tomorrow. But I tell you, and I'll I'll come clean here, it's partly my own experience and the way in which I was kind of formed initially as a Christian and I, I suspect it's something of the evangelical, in general, the evangelical church's experience to major on the objective elements of salvation, the objective aspect of salvation. Um, largely because it's, it's often reflected in our liturgy and in the songs that we sing. So many of the songs and hymns that we sing uh, centre around God's saving activity in Jesus Christ, past event. And there are relatively few hymns or songs that focus on the lived-out reality. There are more, a significant number, quite a lot of them, crummy, to be honest, but there are a number within what, what we might understand as charismatic, and I'm going to do that because I haven't yet sort of defined um, what we might all understand by charismatic, but we've got a general understanding of kind of renewed hymnody and modern songs, and there's quite a bit of, of subjective reflection there. But by and large, I think our Christian understanding of salvation has tended to be weighted towards the objective aspects of salvation, and we've covered quite a bit of that um, in the in the Sunday series this term. Um, salvation as an objective reality, the believer's salvation. I put on the notes here with respect to God, and it's interesting if you just do a, a kind of Bible study, a Bible search of these words: justification, declared right before God in that kind of legal context, or redemption, bought out of slavery in the market context, or reconciliation made right 
with God where there was a break in relationship or propitiation where God's anger is dealt with. In virtually, in every case, with only one or two exceptions in the New Testament, those terms are referred to with reference to Christ. So we are, for an example, I haven't put these on the notes, sorry, but um, we looked at it recently, Romans 3. In fact, let's look, at, let's look at one or two examples. Let's look at Romans chapter 3 to see how this, uh, these metaphors of salvation, that in this case Paul adopts, are linked to the work of God in Christ. Um, let's go from verse 23 of Chapter 3, page 1067. Paul writes, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So here is this um, sort of transactional language, really. The the justification, the redemption. It's a, a deal is done, complete, over, and it's done in Christ. And so we look back at a past event, and in that sense, we can be assured of our salvation. And those metaphors describe how we've gone from, in redemption, from slavery to sonship. Or to um, quote Mark Stibbe in his uh, book on adoption, we've gone from orphans to heirs. And it is what Gordon Fee in his writing, he describes as recognising our positional reality. Our positional reality. It is, if you like, you know, it's almost as if there's a, you know, imagine the, the, the sort of uh, the, the um, aisle here is like a line. And here I am um, in, in slavery to sin. And in being redeemed, I've, I've, I've crossed over now to sonship. And I'm in, I'm in, in God's terms, with reference to God, I'm in a brand new position. Or um, here I am in the dock and my sin condemns me. But Jesus in Christ declares me justified, justified, never sinned. And, and now I'm, I'm free. I, I'm, posi- I'm in a brand new position. I'm no longer condemned by sin, but I'm free. I'm in a brand new position. So my positional reality changes. But here's, here's my contention, and maybe it's, it's born out of um, the excellent groundbreaking, life-changing work of the reformers, Luther, Calvin and others, who, in wanting to, to rid the church of the excesses of the, uh, of the church at that time, the Roman church, came to emphasise justification by faith alone. Um, and so it was, that was how we came into renewed relationship with God. We didn't need to buy indulgences or do all sorts of other uh, additional elements. It was, we could be justified by faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ alone. That was sufficient. And as the Anglican Church, and within that, I guess, to a greater or less extent, the, the evangelical uh, wing of the Anglican Church has majored on 
the importance for individuals to understand their salvation. I wonder whether, and I'm, I don't want to state this, but I wonder whether we have majored a little bit too much on just one aspect of the whole spectrum of salvation and tended to focus on the objective aspects and the positional reality without paying enough attention to what the Bible clearly teaches on the subjective aspects of salvation or if you like, our experienced reality. That I don't just know that I've gone from slavery to sonship, but I, I know what it is to live as a son. That I just, I haven't had my sentence removed and I'm, I know positionally I'm free. I know what it is to live freely. And the Bible, by which I mean specifically the New Testament writers, and again, specifically Paul, just because he's written most of the New Testament letters, the bulk of them. Um, so let's say Paul understands that salvation is both objective reality, the believer's salvation with reference to God, and subjective reality, the believer's salvation with reference to self. What do I understand and know and experience of my salvation. Let's look at a few of these. Again, I'm sorry I've not put them on the sheet. Um, but let's look at um, Titus 3, chapter 3 and verse 5. Um, first one there, sing out the page number. After Timothy. Who's there? Thank you very much. One one three four. Here are some of these subjective aspects. Let's go from verse 3 of chapter 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. There's a whole sermon series in there. Isn't it interesting, though, to notice the order? I don't think the order is important to Paul, but it is interesting to notice that when he begins to describe our salvation in verse 5, he mentions first the work of the Spirit, and then he comes on to Christ. And do you notice the subjective element of the Spirit's work? He washed us with the rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And then there's the... So that having been justified, there's the objective reality, by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So, there's this element of, of washing. Uh, you, you know what it is, I don't, if, uh, if you play sport or um, uh, you just, uh, you may be doing some DIY at home, um, giving a good old clean out to the cupboards and, you know, scrubbing away and there's dust everywhere. And um, you, you kind of break through that barrier. You know, when you start off the work, you're sort of quite clean and, you know, 
Uh, and then you, you start, you know, oh, I've got a bit mucky. And you get, oh. And then you get, you get to a stage and you think, oh, blow it. I'm just going to get mucky. And, and it's so freeing then, isn't it? You can just you sweep away and cobweb and everything. You just get completely caked. Because you think, it's all right. At some stage, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to go and have a shower or a bath and get completely clean. So it doesn't matter how mucky you get. So you get completely mucky. Filthy and grimy and sweaty and your hair's all covered in dust. Isn't it fantastic just to strip off all your clothes, get into the shower or bath and just, just wash, just feel yourself being completely clean and renewed again? Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful, wonderful feeling? You're not, you're not sort of, you don't look like you're too sure about that. Have you ever had that? <laughs> Almost as good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The knowledge that you can get clean or washed again. But it's that, it's, that, it's that sort of present reality of being clean again. And that's, that's something of the picture of the Spirit here in salvation, in our coming to Christ again, coming to God in Christ again. So the washing. Let's look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6 for another aspect. Our justification, our redemption, our reconciliation, bringing new life. Page 1095. Paul, to the um, Corinthian church, who were, he's, he's at pains to say, look, I'm, there's nothing, it's nothing about me. I don't have a, a wisdom or a confidence. Uh, there's lots of wise teachers in, in Corinth who are all very wise, worldly wise. He says, but we do have a confidence. Uh, and, and here's what it's premised on. First, let's go from verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence, competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, says, so I say, live by the Spirit. So the Spirit gives us this experience of life, of new life. And that's part of our experience, subjective uh, experience, if you like, of salvation. Let's look at just one more to do with um, adoption. Just over a few pages for Galatians, chapter 4. Page 1105. Uh, Galatians 4 and verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer slaves, but God's children. And since you are his children, he has made you also heirs. And you see that, that this particular aspect of salvation, which is the knowledge, the ongoing, lived, experienced reality of being a son. And it's the Spirit who, who issues that in us. So that it's by the Spirit we use Jesus' language. Why, why is that not translated into the Greek? Well, because it's the very word that Jesus used. And so as, as 
as sons, from slaves to sons, we begin to speak Jesus' language. It's, a, it's an experienced reality. And we live the reality of knowing what it is to be adopted into God's family. So salvation, I want to argue there's an objective and subjective uh, elements. And they both sit together as we understand the, the whole orb of salvation. The objective elements tend to be described or focused around the work of Christ. But the subjective elements tend to be, it's not a hard and fast rule, but they tend to have much more reference to the Spirit. So that if we are, as Christians, to have a, I want to suggest, a healthy and fully biblical understanding of salvation, then I think we need to hold together the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit, so that we appreciate what God has done in the past in Christ, which is made real to us in the present as we train or try to live out this salvation by the power of the Spirit. One of the questions that the Bible implicitly asks, a fundamental question of all people, Therefore, within the context of salvation, is are you alive or dead? Are you alive or dead? Paul writes, don't worry to turn to it, but uh, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and reminds them, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. But, verse 4 of chapter 2, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. He's not talking about a physical life or death. Obviously, physically, we move around. But in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual uh, uh, sort of uh, dynamic, if you like, are you dead to God or alive to him? John writes in his letter, 1 John 5 verse 12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Um, every single word is just one syllable in that verse. 1 John 5:12. If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. So the question then is, how do we become alive to God? John chapter 1. Very familiar verses on page 1004. John's prologue, talking about um, Jesus coming to be amongst us. He calls him the life in verse 4 or the light in verse 5. And then he goes on to say in uh, verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will but born of God. And we understand as we read John's Gospel that um, those people who are alive to God are those who have been born of God. But um, what does that mean? So let's just turn over a page to chapter 3. What does it mean for a human being to be born of God? And now here, as we've looked at the sort of umbrella of salvation 
the objective and subjective aspects of it. Here's, I want to look at how, for an individual, one enters into this salvation reality. The knowledge of what God has done in the past and the lived out reality in the present of what it is to be saved and to be part of God's people. Now there was, chapter 3, verse 1, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. (coughs) How can anyone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Let's just pause there. Um... Always a little bit of an eye-opener when I um, make reference to this verse on on Alpha as part of the teaching there. Because I think a number of people who are not too familiar, say, with the Christian faith or with Bible teaching, imagine that the phrase born again is about 20 years old and um, emanated from across the Atlantic. And actually, you're really meant to read it with an American accent, with with all due apologies. Um, um, And you see here where the phrase comes from. Um, And actually, Jesus is probably thinking of creation itself, isn't it, where uh, the, this, this idea of the whole world coming into being, almost being born out of the word of God. So uh, there is this sense of, of sort of, um, of kind of pregnancy, giving birth to, to life, which is in creation, and also in the new creation. Paul writes um, in Rome, doesn't he, uh, to the church in Rome about this, so, you know, we're eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons. So we're waiting for this future event which has begun in Christ. So, um, not a brand new idea to be born again. But what does it mean? When um, we, we talk about, I m- remember um, engaging with a, a lady at my, the, my church where I served as a curate. And she was perhaps on the, on the edge of things. And she said, um, she was exploring the Christian faith. She said, I, you know, I'm quite interested in becoming a Christian. But I don't want to be a born again Christian. Um, and we tried to unpack whether that wasn't something of a contradiction in terms. But it's, it's difficult. What, what do we understand by, the, by this phrase that Jesus used? This command, actually, you must be born again. If we're to see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. I'm going to invite you just back into your twos and threes. What does it mean? What does it mean to be born again? What do you understand by that phrase? Um, two or three <coughs> moments on that. Okay. Again, maybe not a very easy question to answer simply, so we can just offer maybe uh, insights, comments, or you may just want to reflect on the kind of discussion you were having. Um, Does anyone want to contribute? Yes. 
Yes, interesting. I like that. There's sort of, yeah, the born, which is a, a kind of one-off event, irreversible event, and yet again, so it happens again. It's an interesting insight. Thank you. And again, helpful just to reclaim original meanings of words or phrases. Um, other contributions? I think that's heavily implicit in it, Tony, yes. I think uh, implied in this sense of starting again is a new direction. Yeah, thank you. Rosemary, thank you. Did you, get, did you catch that? Because I'm not quite sure I can repeat all that. But um, Rosemary will be giving the next three talks on Inside <laughs> Out. Um, uh, no, thank you. Because there was so much in that, actually. And such a, yeah, such a significant moment in one's life that actually we can live with this tension of the born again. Because it is, it, 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 it's such a sort of dramatic new start. Yes, it was, I think Billy Graham, there was a sort of quickening of the phrase perhaps through as he tried to make distinctions. But to be fair to, to Billy Graham, and I think all, many of the reformers, I mean Wesley Whitfield would talk about uh, regeneration, rebirth, a new lease of life. Um, so in capturing all, all of those uh, ideas in, in the phrase. Yeah? yeah I think sure. also the, um, the physical birth, it's a man and a woman come together and a baby is born. Uh, in a physical sense, I think when the spiritual rebirth that I born again, it's the spirit of God that comes, that joins with the spirit of a man or a woman, and there's a, a kind of spiritual birth that takes place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, there's sort of the same but different uh, idea that uh, uh, is here in, um, in John, where is it? Um, yeah, verse 6, just bringing out uh, chapter 3, what Sean was saying there. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But spirit gives birth to spirit. There's, there's two events that we could say are the same, but actually they're, they're radically different. And uh, the commentators are interesting. Um, they're sort of divided on um, what Jesus means in verse 5. Truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Um, I don't know whether that cropped up in any of your discussions, what that actually means. Maybe that's something for the, 
the small groups. Some people take that just to be idiomatic of, of, um, of washing, of being purified as one is born by the Spirit. Others say it's, it's a reference. John doesn't have reference to Jesus being baptised or Jesus' baptism. So it's John's oblique way of referring to baptism. Um, or that being born of water and the Spirit are kind of synonymous, one and the same thing. It's just two ways of saying the same thing. But I, I wonder... I wonder whether, I, I must admit, I, I think I tend to go with the fact, particularly if you look at it in context, that, that a flesh giving birth to flesh is it, marked by, among other things, the, the breaking of waters. And so spirit giving birth to spirit is, is two spirits coming together. That's, that's the start of new spiritual life. And so I, I wonder whether in verse 5 the reference to water there isn't physical birth and spirit is spiritual birth quite a distinct, different thing, a, a brand new start, a brand new way of living and seeing and being, which involves, as we've mentioned, um, the spirit there, the objective reality of Jesus Christ and the subjective reality of our spirit being, if you like, uh, energised and awakened by the spirit of God to the realm of God's kingdom. Uh, mine eye diffused a quickening ray, awake, the dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. I became, if you like, born again or fully alive to God. Time's slightly defeating me. I'm, I, I was, let me just say, if you, and, and for, maybe to follow up with the uh, questions on the back, that um, this phrase, baptism in the spirit, and I can come back to it if people want to ask, on that, being baptised in the Spirit or being baptised with the Holy Spirit, there are basically seven references in the New Testament to that phrase, being baptised in the Spirit. And uh, you'll see that four of them refer to Jesus' uh, ministry, basically. There, there are summation by John the Baptist of the ministry of Jesus. I'm baptising, in a sense, to prepare you, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And I think the inference there is that the whole of life in Christ, living for Christ, being born again into his life is summed up by John the Baptist as a, a baptism and an immersion into the things of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, and those three references, in the uh, two in Acts and one in Corinthians, again refer back to this idea of this summation, if you like, of the whole of Christ's ministry. So I think, um, although you may want to take issue with me here, but I think the the classical Pentecostal understanding of baptism in the Spirit as being something distinct from salvation uh, isn't, isn't uh, backed up, I would say, by the, the references to baptism in the Spirit in Scripture. And I want to say a bit more about that next week when we talk about fullness of the Spirit and what it is to be full of the Spirit uh, and live fully alive to Him. But let me just finish by saying... Uh, just giving this analogy, which the PCC will need to uh, forgive me for, because I've um, tried it out on them. But to this question, being um, alive or dead, assuming that we are alive in Christ by virtue of being born again, then is it possible that we can have more life, that we can ask God for more? How can I have more of God if I already have everything that I have in Jesus Christ? And um, although it's difficult fully to understand, I think um, if you were to look at our dog, who rejoices in the name Connie, um, 
For most of the day, she mopes around in the vicarage. She's fully alive, but she's just sort of moping around. Or she finds a corner, and fully alive, she just sleeps. Or sort of lies there, waiting for you to tickle her tummy. And if you take her out for a walk, and uh, maybe on the green, or South Park, Hurlingham Park, she kind of trots around and sniffs, and you know, runs after other dogs and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's sort of nothing particularly special. But... And she's not a particularly clever dog, but she does recognise two or three words. And one of those words, um, which we haven't specifically trained her, it's just come into being that she recognises the word Richmond. And if we say to her Richmond, she knows what that means. She goes ape even in the house. And we manage, struggle just to get the lead on her. And we open the door, she's sort of out straight to the car. And we open up the boot and she jumps in the, in the boot. She's like, come on, come on, get the lid down, let's go. And her tail is kind of beating against the side of the car as we drive to Richmond. And all the way, as we, particularly as we pull into Richmond Park and she looks and sees and recognises, her ears, junk, straight up like that. She's, she is just, she comes alive. And when we say, that, you know, the, as a family, when we take her out, we observe that, that Connie comes alive. And um, oh, we get her out of the car and actually, off she goes. And it's just... All the kind of smells of squirrels and rabbits and deer and everything. She just goes wild. And if you were to look at Connie moping around in our house and to watch Connie herring across Richmond Park and just sniffing and chasing and galloping and gambling like a little pup, you'd say they were two completely different dogs. Now, in one sense, biologically, I don't think she's any more alive in Richmond than she is in the house. But you'd watch her. And you see how she's fully alive. And I want to, in the next two weeks to explore how it is that as Christians born again by the Spirit of God into the life of God, how is it that we can know the fullness of God and be fully alive in him by his Spirit? But I've done quite enough talking for this evening. Let's just uh, let's stand together. Sort of end this uh, gathered time with a prayer and then um, some moments for us to split down into smaller groups. I'm going to invite you in the, in the groups to kind of think of a time when, remember back to when you first encountered God and it may be that you're, you're not there yet. Um, you, you couldn't say that you know God personally, that You've had this experience of being born again. That's fine. I invite you, if that's you, to consider where you are in the kind of journey. What is it that you need to do, to understand, to ask, in order to receive new life, to be born again by the Spirit of God? For those of us that can maybe remember a time Or just remember being aware that we were now alive to him where once we were dead in our sins. Do you want to recall that moment? In a sense, bring to mind your first love. That fresh reality of God and his reality. Father, as we often pray, we want to say again, thank you for who you are and for what you've done in Jesus Christ, for how you have 
called us into fresh relationship. That we might know and experience the reality of life in your name. And Father, as we give thanks for your work in our lives in the past, we invite you by your Spirit to continue to wash and clean us, to sanctify us. Lord, we continue to ask that we would know ourselves to be free. To know the joy and the privilege and the delight of sonship. Of what it is to be chosen and called into your family. Father, as we rejoice in what Christ has done for us, we ask for the empowering of his spirit. Your spirit. To equip us to live lives that make you look good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.